Hello, and welcome to the Coral Project's No Bataan Needed podcast. I'm Wilson Alexander Aguilar, the executive producer of the podcast and the Coral Project's marketing director. Please make sure to rate, like, love, review, subscribe to, and share the podcast on whatever podcast streaming service you enjoy, No Bataan Needed. Doing so helps our podcast grow and gain new listeners, so more and more people can tune into our monthly conversations. In this episode, our executive audio engineer and sometimes host, Chris Wilmore, has an intimate conversation with his fellow TCP bass singer, Jason Britson. Here are Chris and Jason. Jason, welcome to No Baton Needed. I'm so glad you could join us today. Um, how have you been? I've been good, you know. Um, staying busy, staying busy. Just finished a house move, so... Oh, congratulations. Where did you end up moving to? Uh, we moved to Communication Hill. In South San Jose, right? Right, right. In San Jose, just off of 87. Cool. Well, congratulations. Thanks. How was the moving process? The moving process itself was actually really easy. The, um, <laughs> the process leading up to the move was not so easy. We were delayed by about two and a half weeks on our closing because the people who were running our loan paperwork and also doing the appraisal were pretty incompetent. So it just, yeah, we sat in boxes for a little while and, and just like, we're like, okay, we're just waiting to sign our paper. And uh, yeah, so all good now, though. Catching up. I'm glad. It's been a minute since we've spoken in person, I think. You know, I think our last rehearsal was back in March of 2020. Is that right? I think so. And I think you and I may have met for lunch, maybe before. I'm not sure if that was before or after that, but yeah, it's been a year. Wow. Whole year. Yeah, I miss, miss seeing you and I miss seeing a bunch of people, you know, just in being able to sing together. And I can't wait to do that again. I'm hoping that that'll come this fall. I feel that 100%, you know, like, I think being in the choir filled a really big social role for me, you know, and not having that for a year is, is like, I need to sing, you know, but I need to sing with other people who like have the same passion that I do. Yeah, it's been very difficult. I've really missed singing. And I see a lot of people who they do their own thing at home, and then they post it online. And I think that's really cool. And I love watching them. But it's not something that I really want to do myself. It's not all that fulfilling to me. And so yeah, I can't wait to be able to make music with some other folks. Let's take a step back. You've been with the Choral Project for a little while. Exactly how long have you been singing with the Choral Project? Oh, let's see. This is my, this would be my 10th year. So I joined in September of 2011 when I moved here. How did you end up finding out about the Choral Project? Like what led you to, to try out? So I, at the time, was living in Seattle. And um, the way that I heard about the Choral Project for the first time was we did there were two pieces. One was Christmas Goes Classical, which I believe is one of Daniel's pieces. And then we also did Eric Whitaker's Winter, and it had been performed very, very few times. And so we used the recording the Choral Project had created as, you know, a guide track for us. And I was just, I was, I was blown away. And, um, you know, I was very, very involved with that choir and in how they ran and just happened to learn that Choral Project was down in Cupertino. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. They're near Apple. That would be so cool. And then about six months later, I was applying for jobs and I ended up applying at Apple and you know, never thought that anything would turn out to that and ended up getting a call and getting hired and so on. And I was so excited. I mean, I decided to work for Apple, but I was really excited to sing with the Choral Project because I love their music already. And in fact, when I came to audition for Daniel, I actually didn't live here yet. I flew down here from Seattle and did the audition. And then we also did a house hunting trip 
then flew back. And then a week later, I drove down, back down to California from Seattle, and then uh, moved into my apartment. And then we had our first retreat, like two days later. So it was just kind of like being sucked into this whole coral universe in the Bay Area, along with this whole new work universe. It was kind of overwhelming, but it was really cool. I mean, it sounds like being in the Coral Project has sort of been synonymous with being in California overall, right? It really has. You know, I moved down here and didn't know very many people. And really, it became my family. And I still feel that way about many people in the choir to this day, even people who don't sing here, they don't even live here anymore. Like I totally consider them family. Could you talk a little bit about how you first got into music when you were little? You know, my first memory of singing and doing any kind of music was singing in church. I don't even know how I figured that out. Just kind of all of a sudden, I think maybe our minister of music said, oh, hey, this kid can sing and then kind of plucked me out and just it just kind of put me up on stage and I was singing and that was fine. I loved it and I was good at it. And so that's the way it started. You know, I was singing in church. I mean, that's actually really where I got most of my start. I think that's pretty true of a lot of singers. I grew up in a church and then ended up being in high school choirs and other musical groups around the area and then ended up going to college and measuring and, and uh, majoring in music there. Did you end up performing with any groups while you were there? So I was singing in uh, a group. It was a university choir, basically. It was the the choir for my college, like the top choir. And again, you know, I have the same feeling about them that I had the feeling about the Choral Project. We just did a virtual choir a month or so ago that was this piece called The African Blessing. And it was a piece that we sang in choir at various times. And just watching all those people, um, there were a ton that were from the time when I was in the choir and watching them, it was like, oh, I miss these people so much. Like I haven't talked to this person in 15, 20 years, but I'm like, oh, I totally remember going to school with them. And they were such great people. That's actually one of the really neat things about um, being in music and knowing so many people through music is you just know a lot of great people. What college was this? This was uh, Millican University in Decatur, Illinois. When you entered college, did you pursue a music degree with any particular aim in mind? Well, I double majored in computer science and music and voice performance. And I think when I went into college, actually, when I went to college, I wanted to be a Christian singer. That was like, I wanted to be a contemporary Christian singer. And I started in a commercial music degree at Millican and quickly realized that that was just not what I wanted to do. I mean, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I just like, it wasn't really where my talents were, frankly. And the second one was being gay, that it just, it wasn't going to be a possibility for me. I just wasn't going to be able to have that kind of a career and be able to do that kind of music. So I still wanted to be involved in music and loved it and was very, very involved in all the ensembles in college. But I also did this double major with computer science. And as I got through my degree in music, I discovered that I really, really didn't want this to be my job. Because I loved it so much and I was afraid that it would turn into a job and I would hate it. And in fact, for a while when I was in my undergrad, I hated music. Like I stopped, it was like, oh, I, I just had to stop. This isn't fun anymore. And it got fun again, but it, it was when it wasn't going to become a pressure to make my career out of it. That's when it became fun again. Is there a particular time that stands out in your memory that you had an important performance that you felt was pivotal in your career as a singer? <laughs> what first came into mind is like, I'm a singer, isn't every performance pivotal and <laughs> um let's see what would be pivotal like maybe just one that made you realize you know this is this is what i want to do you know I, I have to go back to my college experience and that choir was just university choir was, was a fantastic experience for me and i remember actually it was when i was a freshman in college when we did this whole program called vespers and it was a, a christmas program with all of the choirs and i mean there are probably two or three hundred people in choirs at millican that may be an overstatement but i mean it's 
hundreds. I think we're, it's a lot, a lot, a lot. And we all sing in this hall and you're surrounding this audience of a couple thousand, I believe. And it's just this wonderful, wonderful experience. And you hear all these voices and singing and it's just, it's such a wonderful experience. And I think that that is a really formative experience for me of like what a concert can do and what a concert can represent to a community. This concert, even though it was like the first time I'd ever been it, been going on for I, I don't even know how long, years and years. It started with the conductor who had started before, who had been in Milliken forever. And so it was really great to be there. And like, this is a tradition that this town has had for decades. And I'm just starting to get involved in it. And I can see why people love this so much. In that performance, you felt that you were carrying on our tradition and the audience was really there for it. Yeah. Yeah. Carrying on that tradition and then making your own memories and tradition out of that. Just a great, great memory. So after college, what happened? So I moved from Decatur, Illinois to Seattle, and I decided that I wanted to work for Microsoft in Seattle. And so I couldn't get them to hire me from Illinois, so I just moved out there. And uh, I lived with a friend of mine for a while. And um, lo and behold, once I lived out there, like, oh, we'd love to have you come and work for us. So um, I worked for Microsoft for 11 and a half years or so. But during that time, I was involved in a ton of musical efforts in Seattle. In fact, when I lived in Seattle and I first graduated from college, I would tell people that like singing was like a second job for me because I would go to work during the day. And then I swear I would have a rehearsal three or four nights out of the week. It was excessive, <laughs> frankly, um, but it was a, a really a lot of fun. So when I was there, I sang in this group called the Esoterics. And they were a fully 20th century and modern classical at this point ensemble. And I believe that the rule that they use is the composer had to have died in the last 50 years if we were going to sing it. It's like either they were alive or died in the past 50 years, but that's it. And then I ended up singing in another choir that was much, that was a small contemporary music ensemble. And then I sang in another group called the Seattle Choral Company. And that was a much larger group and they did more um, large works. Super, super fun. Also got to sing with an all-men's choir called Illumini Men's Chorale. That was also a great experience. I got to sing with my friend Chris McCafferty, who's the conductor for that. And I just feel really privileged to have been a part of so many fantastic ensembles. How did you find out about these groups? So the esoterics, I believe that I knew some people who were related to the choir who were in the choir. And it just kind of it was a just this organic ended up auditioning for the director and that was like 20 some years ago, I guess. I don't remember exactly what happened there, but I just, I remember loving singing in that group. It was um, just a really great way to keep my skills up because it was all sight reading, all 20th century and modern classical. It was just like being in college still. Oh, that was, that was super fun. As far as singing with the choral company, I think that I may have gone to the Yellow Pages or gone to internet search and just looked for like choirs in Seattle. And, and a couple of them popped up and ended up really settling in with the choral company. And again, it was very similar to being in the Bay Area where I moved to Seattle and bam, my choir was my family. Yeah, over and over. Now, I've heard that you were also a cantor while you lived in Seattle. I was. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So I worked at St. Monica Parish on Mercer Island and I was, I was in their choir for a couple of years and then they had a cantor position open up. And I uh, ended up cantering for their uh, Sunday evening service and their Sunday morning service. And yeah, that was a really, really interesting job for me because I didn't grow up Catholic. This was, it was all very foreign to me and, uh, you know, grew up in a church, but not with the same songs and not the same ritual. And so it was a real education for me. And actually, I learned a ton. It was, if nothing else, and getting to sing lots of interesting music and meet lots of interesting people, just got to learn, got to learn about um, people. 
Could you describe what goes into being a cantor for a church? Sure. So when you're the cantor, you are essentially the, in simple terms, you're the song leader. Frequently, you're the person who's welcoming people to the Mass. You're giving them direction on what's going to be happening in the Mass. Like, So we're going to begin by singing this particular hymn, and then you end up leading the singing, telling them when to sing. When you sing a psalm, you, know, you end up singing the verses, and then you invite them to join on the refrain, and things like that. You're kind of, for lack of a better word, you're the MC for the Mass, one way to put it. I'm sure there are people listening right now who are just like, that's not at all what happens. But, you know, it's a very simple explanation. The one thing that comes to mind, though, is it sounds like you had, you know, you had graduated college with a pretty firm conviction that you were gay. Did that provide any tension when you were working as a cantor? Yes, in fact, it did. So I thought that it was going to be a much bigger deal than it was when it started. And really, it was just kind of like a non-issue. My friend Gretchen Rillos, who was the director of the choir at the time, just fabulous musician, by the way. First of all, there were, she had no problem with it herself and just made it a non-issue. For the choir, and it was I was accepted just like everyone else. Um, it was fantastic. I I did have to admit that when I became the cantor and I became a little more public, I was a little more guarded about it because there were lots of people who knew my my partner at the time, and they they were very familiar with him, but other people were just completely oblivious. And toward the end of my time at Saint Monica, there was a situation where um, a priest was accused of grooming a young boy. And as a result of that, it caused the diocese to go into lockdown mode, and they made everyone sign basically morality agreements. And there were several things, not just the fact that I was gay, that were part of that morality agreement that I just couldn't sign. And both for professional reasons, because I was in the tech industry, and there were some things that were very limiting about what you could do with technology, which I just couldn't sign. And then also clearly, the I'm not gay <laughs> statement, I couldn't sign either. And so that caused a lot of stress for me, and a lot of stress for the other employees of the church. Several of them just quit out of protest. I stuck around for a little while and was told that, yeah, it's no problem. And I took a vacation for a month and then came back until was told that I couldn't sing there anymore. I was also booked for a wedding and then that made the bride have to change her music choices at the very last minute. And it just, it was, it was a huge problem for everyone. And I just ended up kind of throwing up my hands and like, listen, if you don't want me to sing, it's okay and just walked away. That sounds like a brutal experience, though. It was. It, w- it was rough to go through. And it was especially troubling for me because so many of those people, I, I mean, I just, I love those people at that church. I've been with them for, I want to say like eight years, I think I sang there. And <laughs> if nothing else, I mean, I wasn't going to get to see those people anymore. And that was really upsetting. But also just to be treated that way, because it, number one, to be told, no, this isn't a problem, and then have them turn around and say, yeah, actually, you're fired was, um, yeah, that, that was an experience I don't want to repeat. Is that the last time you've worked as a cantor? It's the last time I've worked officially for uh, a church in that capacity. You know, I moved down to the Bay Area, and I just didn't have time to do it. I wouldn't have been opposed to having a church job again, but I mean, I literally just couldn't do it. I've been involved in churches here since then, just not professionally. So aside from the story that you just related to us regarding having to leave St. Monica's, have you ever experienced any discrimination in the choral community as a result of being gay? You know, I haven't ever experienced any discrimination in the choral community. I can point to a time in my childhood where I was applying to become a part of a singing group that was a Christian singing group in the area. And, you know, kids talk. They talk about, you know, other kids and there was that me being gay was certainly out there, even though I wasn't out. And this is for a Youth for Christ uh, group. And 
I remember the executive director, you know, basically telling me that I couldn't be in this group because of what people were saying about it felt really horrible and really unfair because, you know, kids are mean. They're really mean and they say lots of things that are true and not true. And I didn't think it was fair for them to uh, exclude me based on that. That didn't end up being an issue ultimately because, long story, it <laughs> didn't end up being an issue. And uh, actually, my high school music director ended up becoming the conductor of that group. And I ended up joining after that. Yeah, I think that was really the only time I, f- I remember experiencing it any kind of issue like that with regard to music, especially choral music. Oh, well, about how old were you when this, um, the exclusion from the group you were talking about happened? That would have been when I was a freshman in high school. So yeah, 14, 15, somewhere in there. Do you feel like it affected how you interacted with people going forward? I think that one thing that gay and lesbian youth experience is they end up being very rigid because they're trying to hide what's going on inside. And I think that that experience made me even more rigid. Yeah, I would say that rigidity and just more um, self-consciousness is what that cost. I want to move a little bit back to your time here in the Bay Area, you know, which we're very grateful for. In addition to being a member of the Coral Project for the last 10 years, you're also a founding member of Resounding Accord Productions, and you're also on their board. That's right. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that group and what inspired its creation and what its mission is. Sure. So Resounding Accord came about from my very dear friend, Christina Nakagawa. She was coming to a point where she wanted to start her own group, and uh, she chose to. And a lot of fantastic folks from Choral Project wanted to sing with her as well. And so there was a, a time there where there were several people in Choral Project and resounding accord at the same time and going back and forth there. And I think Christina's big thing was that she wanted to create a choir that number one had community. Like community was first. You know, of course great singing. There's no question about that. But she really wanted a group that would form community. And so that's been really, really important there. It's also been very important that they're flexible in flexible in in accounting for people's work and family situations. So, you know, I'm I would say that a lot of the music that is that Resounding Accord does isn't quite as complicated or as hard as Choral Project. It, every bit is good in quality, but you know because the music isn't quite as hard, it doesn't require quite the same number of rehearsals or intensity. But yeah, I think that that's it's the community aspect is the really really important thing there. And I think for me and being on the board there, it was I had been on the board of the Seattle Choral Company when I lived in, in Seattle and had a lot of chorus management experience, but I'd never been through the process of starting up a nonprofit and being on the, in the very, very first couple of years of a, an organization. And I've learned a ton. I've learned a ton from that. What was that process like? Did you find it hard to not commit too much of your own resources to the process of starting the choir? I have to say that Jan Clayton, who's a former Coral Project member as well, did a lot of the work as far as getting the nonprofit set up, as far as getting our 501c3 and all the state and local paperwork done and national paperwork done for that. She really spearheaded that as far as own resources. You know, there, there are things that, you know, you decide, suppose if you're talking resources as in money, you know, you decide, oh, I could expense this, but I'd rather just donate it to the organization. And I think the other part of resources is just time. That's the bigger one, I think. Yeah. And for me, you know, working and having a very time consuming job, yeah, it was difficult. I had to really balance what I was doing with that. And also had to balance what I was doing with Coral Project too, because there's only so much room for outside of work. Yeah. And there's only so much energy you have. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 
How has Resounding Accord been doing during the pandemic? Like, how have they been staying active? So Resounding Accord has been holding rehearsals every week, and they start out with some time for just socializing because they understand that people are very isolated at this point. And then they move into a time where they're rehearsing and they're rehearsing for virtual choir numbers. It's very similar to kind of what we've been doing and core project in this past since 2021 has begun. I haven't been to their rehearsals. And so I'm not really familiar with what's going on inside of them, but I see all the emails that come from them. And I mean, I'm expecting great things when they, they have their concert upcoming. Well, it sounds wonderful. I mean, that brings me to a, a more personal question. Like how have you been dealing with, you know, pandemic time overall? Like, have you found any particular strategies that have worked for you as far as staying sane? Uh, huh. <laughs> so um, I really like to bake and cook. And so I've been doing a lot of that recently. Actually, the baking part's been a little frustrating because, you know, it's just me and my husband at home. And, you know, you can only bake so much for two people. What I really loved doing before the pandemic was baking and then taking it into work because I just love to bake like a lot. I don't know why. It's just really satisfying. And then take it in and, you know, have coworkers enjoy it. And I haven't been able to do that for a year. And so for a while, I was baking things and taking them around to people because like, I just need to bake. And I haven't done that so much recently because of the move, but I'm looking forward to getting back into that. You know, the other thing they have to mention is the rehearsals that we've been doing with Coral Project have been, you know, it, it's not the same because you don't get to sing together and you don't get to hear everyone else and laugh together. But the thing that's really great for me was the sound of hearing Daniel doing warm-ups, like just sitting there and, you know, it wasn't just the sound coming through my laptop. Like I ended up having like speakers blaring because I wanted to just like, I wanted to feel like I was in rehearsal. And I love that. And it's been, that was actually great. And it's been great to, you know, sing with it and warm up with it. And yeah, yeah, that's actually been a really important thing. Well, my hope is that, you know, we won't have to stick for that for much longer. I don't know whether it's too much to hope for in-person rehearsals in the fall, but I've got my fingers crossed for sure. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit. One thing the audience doesn't know about me is that I also work at Apple and that's actually I don't think we met at Apple before we met in the Coral Project. I don't think so. But our circles definitely crossed, you know, once or twice. You studied computer science in college, but how did you get to that point? Like, were you always interested in technology? Yeah. So um, I had always been interested in technology. I grew up in Northwest Ohio in a very rural, rural area. And so I didn't have a lot of access to that stuff. I mean, my, my high school had some computers, but frankly, they were kind of old. And, you know, this was back in the 90s when I went to, was in high school. And so, you know, old computers in the 90s were real old. And so I didn't really get a lot of access to that in high school. But my dad brought home a computer when I was in, I don't know, I, w I was still in elementary school and it was a work computer. He brought it home and I just like, I was immediately drawn to it. Yeah, I think that that was really how I got started. And then it just, it snowballed. Like I was always interested in doing things with computers and it wasn't so much programming at the time or anything like that. It was just more like, using computers and like seeing what kind of interesting and useful things you could do with it. I think one of my favorite things to do was to use a program like Finale or something like that to, to be able to do music notation. That was really cool. That was something I really enjoyed. And after that, you know, I think going to college was a huge eye opener for me. It wasn't a school that was really known for computer science. It was known for music. And I was going for music and then like, oh, there's this computer science thing on the side. You know, I feel like as I've gone through this experience, I have certainly had a lot of help and a lot of privileges, but I've also had, there's also been a lot of hard work and just a lot of putting your nose to the grindstone and hoping things work and just going for it. And 
sometimes that's really not worked out very well for me. And other times it really has. And the, the computer science thing and being in the tech industry has worked out really well for me overall. Is there any particular area of, of computer science or of technology that, that excites you the most? Like what you're really passionate about? I don't know if I can say there's anything that I am super passionate about right now. Like I'm, I guess passionate and interested are two different things for me. Like I, and there's some things that I'm really interested in, like um, augmented reality and virtual reality. This whole self-driving car thing is super cool. I'm really interested in them. I don't know if they're passions for me. I have worked on macOS and iOS for the past 10 years. And so I would say that those are more of my passions, but they're like, they become passions at different times, depending on what we're working on. That seems like a pretty good skill, you know, to be passionate about what needs to be done in the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It becomes useful. When you were at Microsoft, you worked on MSN Messenger. Is that right? That's correct. Did. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Like, are there any fun stories? That was my first project management job, actually. So I had been in QA uh, since I started at Microsoft. And I think it was 2005, 2004, somewhere in there. I kept interviewing for program manager jobs because that was really where I was more interested. And that was my first program manager job. I learned a lot there. It was a bunch of really interesting people. It was really kind of my first exposure to services. And so understanding the whole well, back end and there's this great application in front of you, but there's a whole data center behind that application that's making it work. So that was, uh, you know, early in my career, that was a real eye opener for me and really broadened my horizons to other areas of uh, technology. Yeah. Were you there when the service ended? That was after I left. In fact, I think that Messenger ended while I worked at Apple. In fact, I think it wasn't very long after I started at Apple that Microsoft bought Skype and then they had done the whole, yeah, I think that was when I had just started working at Apple. So um, yeah, it was kind of sad to see that get pushed away. In fact, there was an article, it was just this past year that was written about MSN Messenger uh, and how it had all these really cool beginnings and interesting features and how it ended up, you know, going by the wayside. And I just reading that, I was like, oh, that's part of my history. <laughs> but I'm sure it provided a stepping stone for other services. It, yeah, it definitely did. You know, if nothing else, it was my first project management job outside. And it just like opened my horizons to, oh, there's so much more to do here. Now, speaking of technology, apparently there's a video of you on YouTube that's grown pretty popular. You performed Bright Morning Stars with the Coral Project in the 2013-2014 season, and it's got over 31,000 views. Wow, I didn't know that. I know. It's quite a bit. Do you, do you remember that performance? I do. So I, I remember that performance, but I also remember singing that. I love that song, singing it over and over for like about a year and a half, just because of the way it landed. Like it landed late in the season and then we ended up using it the next year. And then just we had it for the next year for just like one concert. Yeah, I, I love that song and I love the message of it. And it had this really meaningful second meaning for me, actually. Yeah. 
2015, beginning of 2016, my mom was diagnosed with ALS and went through about a year and a half of some really, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible disease. Horrible for my mother, absolutely. Um, Also horrible for the family to have to deal with. And I remember being so busy with taking care of my mom and flying back and forth to Ohio. And I I promised my mom that I would sing something for her. I would have some music for her at the funeral. Pretty much told her I wasn't going to be able to sing. But, you know, I was flying back home because I knew that she didn't have long. And I'm just like, I don't have any music with me. What am I going to do? I'm going to have to, you know, get an accompanist there and I'm going to have to do all these, these things. And it popped into my head. Actually, it was Tom Lomeller, one of our guys that I sing with, texted me while I was sitting on the plane getting ready to take off. And he said, oh, my God, I heard that we're doing Bright Morning Stars again this year for Choral Project. And I was like, oh, my God, that's the perfect song that I should play for my mom's funeral. So singing it has a special place in my heart, but it, it will always have a special place in my heart for that reason. Well, it's great to hear stories behind the music. So we're running up against the end of the interview a little bit, but I was hoping to get through some little questions, some light fare. You bet. The name of the podcast is No Baton Needed. We sort of noticed that Daniel prefers not to conduct with a baton. And it's always an interesting point of discussion for the conductors that we interview, you know, whether they prefer it or not and why. So this is the question from the other side, I suppose. Do you prefer or not for the conductor of a choir to use a baton? Like, do you find that one is preferable to the other? Hmm. I would prefer to not use a baton. I like watching the hands because they're so much more expressive. But I would also say, like, if you're really far away from the conductor, sometimes you just can't see the hands well enough. So you need the white thing. But my favorite is to sing without a baton. So we have some fun little questions. This game that we call Would You Rather. <laughs> okay. I'm going to offer you a couple choices, and I'd like you to say a little bit about which one you'd like and, and why. So uh, let's get started, I guess. Weather not being a factor, would you rather wear a tuxedo every day for a month or a bathing suit every day for a month? Um, A tuxedo every day for a month. Why is that? I don't think that I would be comfortable walking around in a bathing suit all the time. Like either way, you're going to get stared at because like, why are you wearing a bathing suit or why are you wearing a tux? I think for me, it's probably just more comfortable to be in the tux, even though it doesn't sound comfortable at all. I don't know. All right, so this is a very pandemic-related one, but given how long hair got for some people, including present company, mm-hmm. during the pandemic, would you rather always have a mullet or a man bun? <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. I think I'd have to say a mullet. I'd have to say, yeah, I'd have to say a mullet. Um, yeah, you know, I look at the man bun and I'm just, I, I don't get it. And the other thing that I think about with a man bun is, you know, getting older, your, your hairline starts to recede. And I don't want to do anything to pull that back, like nothing. So yeah, I think I'd have to go with a mullet. Would you rather hear the good news first or the bad news first in general? Bad news. I would rather hear the bad news because a lot of times people say, well, do you want to hear the good news and the bad news? And you say, well, good news. And then they give it to you. I'm like, that wasn't very good. I'd hate to hear the bad news. Wow. Would you rather our computer monitors never advanced past the monochromatic green screen? or that our mobile devices never advanced past being flip phones? Oh, that's hard. I think I would have to say flip phone. Yeah. And that's really weird for me to say. I mean, that one cut me to the core. I don't know. That's kind of like asking me, like, if I had kids, like, which kid I'd like better. (laughs) Sorry. Pass. Sure. All right. Uh, Would you rather only have the ability to listen to country music or listen to heavy metal during a workout? Heavy metal. Heavy metal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one, too. But heavy metal. Do you have any preferred bands that would fall in that genre? Yeah, none. No. 
<laughs> I, yeah, I was trying to think like what what would be some stuff that I would like. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know. <laughs> Well, Jason, I just wanted to say I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today and let us into your life a little bit. Oh, thank you. And um, I can't wait for the day that we can actually get together in person and start singing together again. I know. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. This fall. This fall. Fingers crossed. We're going to have to both bring cookies. You know, everyone's going to get fat. It'll be great. It'll <laughs> be great. I love it. <laughs> thank you so much. And I hope that you have a great rest of your day. Great. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Coral Project's No Bataille Needed podcast. Please be sure to follow the Coral Project on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and SoundCloud. And see you next month when the Coral Project's artistic director, Daniel Hughes, speaks with internationally renowned choral conductor, Maestra Maria Guinat. Thank mm-hmm. you.